0: Philippians, chapter 1, starting in verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father.
1: The church in Philippi was generally happy and healthy. Philippians is not one of those letters where Paul starts out with a very clear challenge to something in particular that was very problematic in the church. So it's not like Galatians, where there's a big issue that Paul wants to address almost as he begins the letter. But like any church, Philippi, the church in Philippi, is not a perfect church and one of the underlying problems in the book of Philippians that you can hear Paul speaking about again and again as he goes through is an underlying problem with unity. We touched on that last week didn't we in chapter 1 and verse 27 where Paul speaks there of his desire to know that he stand firm in one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And That's a helpful reminder that if you were with us last week, you'll remember that that whole section from verse 27 through to verse 30 is speaking about living a life worthy of the gospel. Speaking, as we saw last week, of things we must do as Christians, what it looks like day by day. And so, unity as the people of God is part of our day-to-day pattern of holiness as Christians. True piety, that is, a life walking by faith in relationship with the Lord, is inward and outward. It affects what I do personally day-to-day, but it also affects my relationship with other Christians because God puts saved people into churches And in churches, we are linked together through our shared faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And a unified body of God's people is vital. Discord within the church harms the whole church. And that's a real concern of Paul for the believers in Philippi. If you have a Bible and you jump on to chapter 4 and verse 2, we'll hear Paul there pleading... With Eudea and pleading with Syndicate to be of the same mind in the Lord. What we believe are two women who can't agree together, that is harming the whole fellowship. It's having implications for all the brothers and sisters there in the church. Reminds me of a conversation I had with a, a pastor. You know, when someone says something that really surprises you and uh, this gentleman is known for being fairly forthright at times. But the thing that he said to me really struck me is he said, I hate strife within the people of God. A man who wasn't afraid of speaking God's truth clearly and publicly said, I hate strife within the church of God. Do you? Do I? And it's really interesting in Philippians that as Paul begins to get into this subject of unity, which will be the subject he'll be speaking about in its fullest sense in both this section in verses 1 to 4 and as we continue next week in verses 5 to 11, Paul frames this appeal to unity among the people of God in terms of how that will give to him the gift of joy. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. He says in verse 2, as he is issuing this appeal to unity, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. You might phrase that, complete my joy. Fill it up to the brim. You know, So he's a joyful man, Paul. We know that, we hear that in the letter. But he says, you can make me even more joyful if you will be united in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you know in the Philippians, you'll know it's an epistle of joy, isn't it? It's a book uh, where Paul says in chapter 1 and verse 4 that he is praying for the church with joy. In chapter 4 and verse 1, he describes the church as my joy and my crown. And then in chapter 4 and verse 4, he says to them, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. So it's a great epistle of joy. He wants joy for them as Christians He sees things in them that give him joy, but he now asks them to give him even more joy by being united. Now, isn't that astonishing when you think about Paul's circumstances? His situation is that he is constrained, he's under arrest, he's not a free man, as it were. And yet he says, I would not find the greatest joy in being free. But actually, my plea for you is that you will be unified to fill up to the brim, to complete my joy in the Lord. And there are a great number of ways in which the Bible motivates us towards holiness and good things as Christians, including unity. But giving joy to others is an unusual motivation in Scripture, isn't it? (laughs) And so for that reason, it's worth us just noting that here. But it's a good motivation. We are to live for the glory of God and we are to pursue others' joy in God. And even here, Paul says that our holiness, our pursuit of unity as a people of God can bring joy to other Christians. I was struck by that this week because we were just chatting informally as elders and one of the brothers in the eldership said, someone had made my weekend That's a great thing to say. And do you know why it was? It was seeing an individual's spiritual growth. It gave him joy. It's a good thing. And so our focus today, as we think about this call to unity, is how we can give others joy by pursuing unity. How we can give others joy by pursuing unity. We're going to focus in... On just verses 1 to 5, next week, God willing, we'll pick up those amazing verses in 5 through to 11. But let's begin uh, in verse 2, as we see the first way in which we pursue unity to give joy is by having or pursuing a shared outlook, verse 2. Pursue a shared outlook. Look down with me at verse 2, where Paul says, "...then make my joy complete by being like-minded." That's that call to unity. And how do we do this? Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do you notice all the ones and sames there? There's three of them, I think. And it goes back to the beginning of the plea there in chapter 1 and verse 27 that we might be striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. We live in a tribal world, don't we? We live in a world where people have divided loyalties and divided priorities. And it's a very black and white binary world in that, isn't that sense, isn't it? You are either with us or you're with them. You either care about my issues or you just don't care at all. You have to choose your allegiance, as people say. There seems to be a little opportunity to be a bridge builder who perhaps goes across a number of groups, who has a shared concern with all of them in different ways. You are, in the language of our culture, either an ally or an enemy. And that's a hard world to navigate, isn't it? It's a hard world to navigate. It's actually quite childish, if we think about it. It's a bit like being back in the playground, isn't it? And there's a group here, and you're either in that friendship group, there's a group here, and you're either in that group, or you're over there on your own, but you've got to be somewhere. Calls to real maturity as God's people and as citizens, concerned for our worlds. And the great challenge that our leaders and our thinkers are struggling with is how do you unite people in light of all that? How do you bring people together in a way that is lasting and powerful? Well, friends, God's truth and God's work in as individually as believers is a great means of unity, is it not? We have a shared identity. We are all sinners, We are all, if trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, saved by grace alone, through faith alone. We are, as James reminded us at the beginning, united in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a shared identity, and for that reason, because we're united to him, we have shared priorities. Not our priorities, but God's priorities, as we hear them in his words. They come from our great commander and king, and so we join in them together. And in light of all that, look down at verse 2 and notice there, Paul calls us to ever-increasing shared outlook, a growing likeness. He speaks of being one in love and in mind and in spirits. I wonder if one way you might picture this is to think about what happens to a couple when they get married and before they get married and perhaps as they get married they recognize pretty soon on that they have different preferences in terms of food different preferences for the calorie count in each meal or the fat content or the sugar content or lots of other things as well uh, different preferences of music different desires for the home decoration certainly often different preferences for the temperature on the heating thermostat and Different loves in terms of musical preferences. But over time, what happens? Well, over time, those very different preferences and priorities get closer and closer and closer. Not that they are exactly identical all the time, but we begin to love the same things. We begin to think in similar ways. We begin to have that oneness of spirit and of mind. And as we think about our relationship with each other as a God, God's people, that is a thing we should be aiming for, brothers and sisters, to have that shared outlook, that growing sharing in love together, that growing sharing in mind and in outlook together. And if that's an attitude we're aiming for, then we have to recognize that that will take work. It will take time. We have to prioritise doing so on the Lord's Day, spending time together, but not just on the Lord's Day, pursuing that as we can through the week. Because we thought about last week, unity isn't something we just have when we need it. It is something we develop and practise so that it is there instinctively when the challenges come. This takes work. Let us seek, therefore, to get to know one another Let us seek to share in our loves and our passions and our priorities and our love for the Lord's, growing in one mind and in one spirit, as Paul says, because attitude is foundational. Pursue a shared outlook. Verse 2. Now let's move to verse 3 and see that we are to practice humility. Practice humility. Martin Lloyd-Jones was known for telling preachers to notice the negatives, in particular, when they were studying the Bible. And it's important that we notice negatives. And in verse 3, there is a very strong negative. (laughs) Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Someone has said that the greatest barrier to unity among God's people is not different views over Secondary or tertiary issues among the people of God, but rather self-centered sinners in God's people. And by that, I mean all of us as sinners. (laughs) And what Paul is particularly focusing on here, with God's spirit having that laser beam directness to often the very heart problem in our unity He's concerned about selfish ambition and vain conceit. He's concerned in selfish ambition about a desire for self-promotion, where the goal is about what something does for me or how it promotes me. And he's concerned about what our NIV renders as vain conceit, which you might also translate as empty glory or vain glory and in this context i think paul is focusing in on which is why it's translated like this a desire for our own glory you know there, we sometimes speak up people don't we who are sun seekers and maybe this half term you've got some plan for some half term sun get some warmth and some sunshine or in the next few weeks that's something we many of us would appreciate but the bible tells us that all people are glory seekers All of us seek glory. We seek it in our pop stars and in our sports heroes. But here in particular, we see that we seek it in ourselves. That is to say, we want to escalate ourselves and seek glory in our own self-promotion. The prideful heart that seeks what we want and our desires And our prominence. God's word teaches us that whilst we are all to seek glory, we are not to seek it in ourselves, we are not to seek it in others, we are to seek it in the one who is truly glorious, our God. And we are therefore to dwell upon God's glory. The way out of this pursuit of self glory, which leads to pride, is to seek glory in God. And, well, to see the glory of God, first of all, to dwell upon the majestic greatness of our God to fill our minds with thoughts of him and all that he has done, and then to make it our goal and our aim and our passion to pursue all for his glory and not our own. And friends, when we do that, that brings great humility to our hearts and it brings great unity among God's people. I was chatting with someone last Sunday morning who made the great statement that If you get five atheists together in a room, they won't stay there very long because they'll fall out and disagree and leave. Why? Well, they'll do so because they seek their own glory. As we all would do, left to ourselves. But seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ kills our pride. It makes us humble. And then, as we live for the glory of God and not our own glory, then that, friends, is the route to true humility. It calls us to each day and in every situation asking one simple question What would bring glory to God? simple but hard to keep on doing, is it not, friends? Because we just get on with the day and we do the default. And the default of our hearts is so often to seek our own glory or others' glory. But as we ask and prayerfully ask the Lord to help us, Lord, help me to do what would bring glory to you in this situation, in that situation. I do think I'm more and more convinced of the statement that we are to think slowly and act quickly. That is to say, that we must think more carefully before we act to weigh our motives and our reasons for action very carefully and then act and as we practice this humility as we live for the glory of God and not our own glory then that's kind of an implication for how we live together as a church and patch particularly how we serve with one another it will mean that we are willing to stretch be stretched in serving in new areas of the church perhaps in areas that are outside of our normal comfort zone whether that be in things that we believe to be areas of our strongest gifting or perhaps areas where we get the most enjoyment in good ways in ministry if we are called to steward our gifts that's right but if there is great need then Perhaps it will be right at times for us to be willing to step outside of those areas where we feel most at home so that we can fill need where there is need among the people of God. So practice humility by seeking the glory of God in all things. But then, thirdly, we see we are to persistently look outwards, pursue a shared outlook. That takes time and effort together. Secondly, practicing humility. And then thirdly, persistently look outward. And this is verse four, where Paul says, Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. We live, friends, in a therapeutic self help culture that calls us to just look after ourselves to just think about my needs, to just think about my interests, to just think about me. We're told you deserve better. We're told that we are to look after number one and number one alone. And so for that reason, a number of versions render verse four. And here's the ESV. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that captures verse 4, but also the biblical balance, that we are rightly called to care for ourselves and to care for others. We are rightly called to steward our bodies and to care for ourselves, and most of the time we're generally good at that. But if our orientation is just inward, if all we are concerned about is ourselves, that will fracture the people of God because everything becomes all about me. So can I plead with each one of us, genuinely plead, this is a massive issue I believe, for Christians all over the world. Can I plead with us to not let the self-centred therapeutic culture shape us? Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the word of God. Because God keeps on pushing us outwards as his people. He keeps on saying, think about others' needs. Think about others' burdens. Think about others' concerns. And it's interesting, in the original, the word interest isn't there. So you might render it as to say, let each you look not not only to his own, but also to others. And I think that's helpful, actually, to think of it that way, because it's not just about interests. It's about everything. It's about everything we think about, whether we are internally focused or outwardly focused alongside a right concern for ourselves, where we should be. Friends, as we do that, it is so good for our souls. It is so good for our spiritual lives, because the more we look inward, the more we become discouraged and increasingly selfish. But the more we look outward, that is good for us. So let me ask us all how we can look to help others this week. How we can look not just to our own but also to others this week. Could it be that you could spend some time reading and praying through the membership list of the church and you pray, Lord, lead me to a situation where I can really help someone here. Or maybe aware of a situation, perhaps in your home group or in the wider life of the church, where you could think about not just your own, but others too. Offer to help. Show love. Maybe it would mean sending a letter or a gift to a missionary partner this week. Now that, I think, this third step, persistently looking outwards is in many ways the hardest step. And it's hard work because our hearts have springs in them, spiritually speaking, that come from our sinful nature that keep on turning the dial inwards rather than outwards. This is a removable tow bar. (laughs) And it's uh, heavy stuff. Um, And uh, last summer, a year and a half ago, I managed to break it halfway through the holiday. I was very grateful for the um, help of a number of friends to get our tent and trailer back from not-so-sunny St. Ives that year. But um, it broke, and then we got home, and we needed to fix it for the following year. So I went round to Greg's house, and he took it into his tool shed, and we spent a good hour or so trying to fix it. What had gone wrong was in here, this had popped out, and there's a massive spring there, and... The way it works is you have to ratchet it back once it's gone in. And it's hard work when it's all working okay. But when the spring had come out and the pin wasn't in place, it was impossible. We had vices, we had hammers, we had two grown men and a young man involved as well, and we couldn't get it back down again. In the end, we thought, this is not wise, because even if we do get it back down again, it might fall out. So... Let's send it back to manufacturers, and we did, and they gladly fixed it, so I'm very grateful for that. But as I was thinking of how do we picture what our hearts are like, is it not like that? In that there is a spring inside of us that's always turning inwards, and we have to keep on pushing ourselves outwards. We have to stop seeking our own glory. And instead seek the glory of God. And it needs great power to do that. Where does that come from? Look at verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... Then. Do you see what Paul is doing, friends? What Paul is doing is he is pointing us to think about all God has done for us and who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the way in which the spring in our hearts gets turned outward when it keeps on wanting to going inward. He says, think of the encouragement that comes from your union with the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that, think of all the comfort you know from the love of Christ. We sing, don't we? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? And not only that... Don't just think of your union and your love. Recall, Paul says, your common sharing in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And I think it was Motia who said this week that this verse reminds us that that unity is not about someone else getting on with me, as we so often sinfully think, but rather it is recognizing that the Holy Spirit is within me and within you. We share in the same spirit as believers. That is a great unifying truth. And he doesn't stop there because then he says, look at the end of the verse, if any tenderness and compassion. And he says, think of how kind God is to you. Think of how he reached down from heaven in sending the Lord Jesus Think of how Christ came to show that true care, not just spoken, but demonstrated. Think of the way in which he kept hold of a solid ground in holding on to his divinity, taking taking upon himself a full human nature and reached down. And he reached down, Christian, and he rescued you from the depth of your sin. He rescued you, though you lived as a rebel in the world that he had made. Though in thought, word, and deed you said no to God, God did all that. And then you think what a Saviour we have. What a Father I have. What a gift in the shared spirit. And that begins to reset the spring that we would stop being selfish and inward-focused and start living for the glory of God, therefore growing in unity. That's why Paul starts, so he does in verse 1. He says, look to Jesus. He says, think of him and all that he has done. Because dwelling on Jesus Christ will bind us together stronger than any glue in all the world. And it will bring you and it will bring others real joy.